0: we go to Matthew chapter 10 verses 1 to 25 now the last image of we have of Jesus in Matthew's gospel is Jesus sending his apostles out into the world for the mission to bring all nations into discipleship under Jesus all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me go therefore And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. But this mission with which the Gospel of Matthew finishes has already been anticipated in today's mission, today's passage back here in chapter 10, verses 1 to 25, where the disciples were sent out not to all nations, but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now one of our difficulties is to work out the connection between these two missions, the mission of the 12 in chapter 10 and the mission of the 12 in chapter 28. Especially in the light of today's mission, to reach the ends of the earth with the gospel of Jesus does that mean Christians shouldn't own a house? Christians shouldn't have two tunics? Christians shouldn't have a bag, shouldn't have money? Do we apply this straight to ourselves or do we say, oh no, no, that's, that's, that's for then, it's got nothing to do with us? And how many other passages of the Bible are we going to do that with whenever it seems to be inconvenient to us? Here in Matthew 10.10, Jesus tells the disciples not to acquire a bag for your journey nor two tunics. But when you come to Paul in prison, he sent to Timothy to bring the cloak, also the books and above all the parchments into Timothy 2.13. So there is a, a difference in how you do the mission between the mission to the nations and this mission to Israel. And the mission in chapter 10, though, speaks of being dragged before the courts, though there's no record that that happened to any of them. Yet, of course, It certainly is the record that happened in the book of Acts to the apostles afterwards. So do we have here a description of what missioning is going to be like or do we have a description of just what this mission is going to be like and how do you pick which is which and how you apply which part to which part of our lives? How do we then apply the mission of the 12 in Matthew 10 to world mission and to our lives here as Christians in Sydney? Now chapter 9 started with the harvest, but as we read the Gospels we must keep in mind Jesus' timing. He didn't come on a long indefinite mission, but a short climactic ministry of about three years. He was always heading to his death in Jerusalem, a death that would start the kingdom of God and commence the judgment of the world in his resurrection. And so he looked at the crowd in chapter 9 verse 36 if you'll look there with me and when he saw the crowds he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd then he said to his disciples the harvest is plentiful but the laborers are few therefore pray earnestly to the lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest he knew that his death and resurrection The harvest time was coming and coming soon. The time of salvation when the harvest is brought home, the time of condemnation when the stubble and the chaff are rejected, the time of decision and finality when judgment is made was very soon upon them. He knew the harvest was coming yet with slightly mixed metaphors, the people are like sheep without a shepherd, Both the harvest and the shepherdless sheep are Old Testament figures and images. But seeing this need of the sheep and noting the imminence of the harvest, the judgment, Jesus saw the necessity of having more labourers in the field to gather in the harvest. Therefore, verse 38, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out labourers into the harvest. And thus he appointed the twelve. Now numbers are important for us for lots of reasons, Uh, the world seems to be constructed on the principles of numbers, God's the great mathematician in the creation of this world. Numbers are really important though for some of us of course it's still the horror of infant school which we never recovered from, especially those old enough to have actually done money sums of pounds, shillings and pence in long division, that was the dividing line between those who continued in education and those who died around about second class. But for those of you in a decimalised age what I've just said is completely meaningless. Uh, It's life, I'm sorry for you. However, numbers are important things, they're really very important but for most of us what they are is about mathematics, about the the relationships and patterns that are created by numbers but yet numbers have non-mathematical significance as well. We Commiserate with the batsman who gets out for 99 and we congratulate the one who scores a century. What difference does the one run make? I mean, at the end of the game, no game or very few games in cricket are ever settled by one run, and yet somehow 99 is a failure and 100 is a success. If I scored 99 in a test match, I'd count it as a success, but it really would, people would commiserate. Bad luck, bad luck, how misfortunate to only score 99. Some people think that 13 is unlucky. It always amuses me because I go into hotels sometimes where they don't have a 13th floor the people living on the 14th floor are actually on the 13th floor but they're going to have a miserable time when their bad luck happens to them and we don't want them to be unhappy knowing that that's going to come upon them so we tell them it's the 14th floor so that they can be happily sleeping in bed when disaster befalls them. I mean, there's a great absurdity about 13 is an unlucky number. How can it be unlucky, let alone the 13th row in the aeroplane? As if it, in it only is going to be crashed or hurt or something or other great absurdity but yet people don't like the number 13 or the number 666 is considered to symbolise evil. Now our Chinese friends are sitting very quietly here amused by our stupidities and of course 888 symbolises wealth and prosperity. You ever see a wealthy car with a number plate 888? You don't have to look inside, you know which nation, which nationality with their is driving that car and you'll never see them driving around in 444 unless it's a hearse which is not something I've seen the Chinese driving. But four is the symbol of death, which doesn't make much more sense than 13 is the symbol of bad luck. There is all kinds of number symbolism that can be explained, but actually you don't explain them. It's intuitive. It comes with your cultural package. You just know these things somehow. Well, the number 12 is a very important Bible number. It's the number within Israel that symbolizes the nation. There were 12 sons of Jacob and God changed Jacob's name to Israel. And so there were 12 sons of Israel and they became the 12 tribes of Israel. And the nation of Israel was a nation of 12 tribes. And so 12 is the number of Israel. Jesus is amongst his disciples, all Jewish, about to send them out on a mission to Israel and so he selects, surprise, surprise, 12. 12 is the number. Here are the apostles, the ambassadors of the kingdom, to have his authority over the kingdom of darkness that seemed to be ruling the land at the time. And Jesus sent them out on, to do this, his work. Not a different work, but his work. The mission is explained to them, and it is to us, in verses 5 to 25. The task is one that required the authority that he gave them over evil and over death. Verse 1, and he called his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits and cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. This is what he sends them out in verse 5 to be doing. For these were the signs of the coming of the kingdom of heaven, breaking into this world people were being liberated from their enslavement to the powers and principalities of death and evil that held them in disease and affliction this is what jesus had been doing since he started his own ministry back in chapter 4 of matthew's gospel there were great dangers in doing this that his mission would be derailed because people didn't understand it certainly the crowds didn't understand it they just wanted the miracles The disciples could easily also misunderstand it, but then that's what the Sermon on the Mount was about, the three chapters that we worked through over uh, a few months, the last few months of uh, our studies here, where he is constantly warning them, narrow is the way, few that are on it, large is the way, many will come to me, didn't we prophesy in your name, do mighty works in your name, and I'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. Jesus has warned his disciples, taught his disciples that it's not about the miracles, It's about what the miracle symbolised, namely the kingdom of heaven. Well, now was the time to get them involved in doing the work. But he set limits on their mission. You see the primary limitation in verses 5 and 6. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. This was not the time for world mission. This was the time for the lost sheep of Israel. This was the last moment for Israel to repent. And this was a matter of urgency. For notice how he says in verse 23, when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. The Son of Man comes in Daniel 7. He comes in the judgment day at the end of the world when he is given all authority to rule over all nations for all time. Jesus is saying, before you finish your mission going just through Israel, the great day of judgment will commence. The Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of all power and authority and all the nations will be given to him. It is, of course, referring to Jesus' resurrection and ascension when he arose to sit at the right hand of his father in heaven, and all his enemies started to be placed under his feet. But this timing was always confusing to the disciples. It would have been for us as well if we'd been there. See, it's easy for us because we're living after the resurrection. But for them, very confusing. In in Acts chapter 1, their last appearance of Jesus before he ascends to heaven in the book of Acts, they, say, they said in Acts six, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times and seasons the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So the disciples just don't understand the plan. They don't understand the program. It was a difficult plan and program to understand, although... Jesus got it from the Old Testament. If they'd read their Bible with the Holy Spirit in their hearts, as Jesus had in his heart, it was all there. But they didn't get it. They didn't know what was happening. But he said, go. Before you finish getting through Israel, the Son of Man will come. The judgment will start. The kingdom of heaven will be there. So don't go outside Israel. There's more than enough to do here. For this mission is for them. But note also in the context of the mission the message is the kingdom you see it back in verse 7 and proclaim as you go saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand heal the sick, raise the dead cleanse the lepers, cast out the demons this is the central message of Jesus just as it had been of John the Baptist before him, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, repent believe the message with the kingdom of heaven came the king the messiah But also came the new age of God's messianic people being saved from all their enemies and being judged by God. So now the 12, the 12 were to hurry through the land of Israel with the great news of the kingdom about to start. Their task was therefore twofold both proclaiming and healing. The proclamation was the very nature of the mission, the healing without the message of the kingdom wouldn't save Israel the proclamation was central, people needed to know that in the healings, in the cleansings, the raisings, the exorcism, the kingdom of heaven was breaking into this world and the message though was coming with these healings and cleansings and raisings and exorcisms for they showed what kind of kingdom was being spoken about that was coming, these are the signs that it was more than just words, the kingdom was not just a another empire, it wasn't just beating the Romans, but it was the kingdom of heaven, the conquest of the forces, the power that would overcome the forces that grip this evil world and overthrow the dominion of death. It was a real kingdom that was coming that would change life as we know it. And because of the message and the imminence of the kingdom, the provisions that the 12 were to take with them were absolutely minimal. Verse 8, the stark bit for us. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons you received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold nor silver nor copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, no two tunics nor sandals nor a staff, for the labourer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. This is not a permanent mission. This is not go to Greece and live there for 10, 20 years and preach the gospel. This was stay in Israel and go as fast as you can because before you reach the border, the kingdom will have arrived. It was a a very temporary mission that they were engaged in. And so it wasn't building up some mission center with its meeting rooms and houses. It was just a last minute dash through the land, warning the people of the judgment that it was about to come upon them. Have you been watching, Sandy, the the great storm that's off New York and the eastern coast of America at the moment? Being there, of course, there's more cameras per square inch than anywhere else in the world, so we'll get better pictures of it and more news of it than any other storm in the world. But the message has gone out. And I was interested to see a lady saying, well I, I really didn't believe it until I actually went into the street and no one was around and the shops were closed and then I saw that a crane had fallen over and uh, now I believe it and I'm now, and, but the message comes out, the storm is coming, there are pictures that we have shown of, of supermarkets that are empty of shelves. My problem whenever I've been in a supermarket in America is sensory overload. There is so much on every shelf, I can never work out what to buy. I spent 20 minutes in a shop once trying to buy orange juice. At the end of 20 minutes, I walked out without any. I was just totally out of headache. I couldn't... Of all the orange juices under the universe and all the ways you could mix them and all the sizes that you could have of them, it was too much for me. I just went and found a bubbler and drank water. It, here in this country, which has more on its shelves than you can imagine... The message has come, the huge storm is about to arrive and people have gone and done the right thing, well possibly the right thing, they've downloaded all the shelves, they've stored themselves up, they're ready for the blast. That's the kind of message we're talking about. The, The kingdom's about to arrive, the son of man is going to come to the ancient of days, the judgment of the world is going to come and it's going to come before I can get to the borderline. So get ready, get ready. And the responses to their mission would determine what they would do and how they would do it. See, the responses would be varied. Some people would welcome them warmly. Others would reject them outright. Still others would even persecute them. For their work will lead to division and hatred and persecution. That's strange, isn't it? You go out to warn people of the disaster that's coming. And instead of them thanking you and taking preventative action they kick you out, they persecute you, troublemaker. But with each response, there's an appropriate way forward. So when they're accepted and received, verse 12, as you enter the house, greet it, and if the house is worthy, uh, let your peace come upon it. The worthy house is the one will accept the message of the Lord, and so will accept the messengers of the Lord. But where they're not received, well, they're to leave, shaking the dust off their feet to symbolically totally disassociate themselves from the house, treat them as you would treat the Gentiles, have nothing to do with them, not even leave the dust on your feet. For like Sodom and Gomorrah, they are to be destroyed, even worse than Sodom and Gomorrah, who were demolished in a, a violent moment of what we would call a geological catastrophe, but what the Bible rightly saw is the judgment of God upon them. You remember Lot's wife? She hesitated. She looked back and becoming a pillar of salt do not be like her shake the dust off your feet have nothing to do with the houses the cities of destruction move on you haven't got time to hang around with them you can see friends we have problems don't we we missionaries of the 21st century I've shared the gospel with this person do I now they haven't accepted it do I now stay and share it with them a second time or a third time or a 25th time, I mean how many times do I invite my friends to come to church to hear a Christian message? At what point do I say, enough, I'm moving on to another suburb, I'm moving on to another town, I'm moving on to another network of friends. You see from here it would sound like once that's enough, if they didn't get it the first time, move on. But yet, this is the mission in a haste, this is the mission to Israel at the very end, the the speed element is not the element that we are caught in, but the strategies of the disciples is not only to be responsive, it's not only to be responsive where they're accepted, to bring peace, and where they're rejected, to depart quickly. It's not only responsive, it's also to be prepared. For you can rest assured, persecution and conflict will come. So they're to be prepared that that's what's to happen. Uh, Politicians are always trying to unite us all into a community and harmony. And to support their exercise of power, of of course, as well. But prophets are not politicians. Prophets always have the opposite effect. Even though it's not their intention, prophets always are drawing the line in the sand. And as they draw the line in the sand, they're always alienating people, annoying people, angering people, dividing the community and arousing opposition and hostility. As this member of the family says, yes, it's going to come. And this member of the family says, don't be stupid. It's always been like this. And so this family, they want to change and this family doesn't want to change. Beware of men. Verse 17, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues and you'll be dragged before the governors and kings for my sake. Verse 21, brothers will deliver over brother to death and father his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death and you'll be hated by all for my name's sake. That seems to be much more part of the permanent reality than the temporary mission. We don't know of any account that that's what happened to the Twelve when they went on this mission. There's no account that it didn't happen either. There's just no account. But it certainly happens whenever people go preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus' teaching about the responses that the Twelve will experience are particularly detailed about dealing with a chaos and opposition that must be expected if they proclaim the kingdom. For there are evil people, wolves out there, And so while the 12 must be as innocent as doves, they are not to be stupid, but to be as wise as serpents. This is a famous and wonderful combination of metaphors. The sheep are sent into a pack of wolves as serpent-like in their wisdom and dove-like in their innocence. And I worry about mixing metaphors. Wisdom without innocence is low cunning. Innocence without wisdom is naive stupidity. You need both wisdom and innocence, especially in the context of being a sheep amongst the wolves. When called before the courts, they were not to worry about how to testify, for the Holy Spirit would answer. He'd answer for them. For ultimately the Holy Spirit is the evangelist and we are but his mouthpiece. They must expect division and hatred and so mustn't give up and be discouraged. Rather press on enduring to the end. So just move on to the next town. Look for those who seek the kingdom and receive you happily. Verse 22, and you'll be hated by all men for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And when they persecute you in one town, verse 23, flee to the next one. Don't be surprised by negative responses. I, I think today Christians are surprised by negative responses. And after a few negative responses, we stopped speaking about the gospel because we didn't like the negative responses we got. When you start evangelizing, learn from the beginning, you will get negative responses. So that when one happens, you say, ah, that's what I expected. And you'll move on to the next one. You won't be shocked and surprised. After all, you're mentioning, you're preaching, you're representing the man that the people crucified. If they crucified your Lord, why do you expect them to give you a bunch of roses? It doesn't come that way. Don't be surprised by the negative response. They called me Beelzebul, the house of the devil. You can't expect that they're going to welcome my disciples, says Jesus. Well, this is the harvest mission of the 12 apostles. But what is this connection between the harvest mission and world evangelization? How are we to understand this passage as it applies to the world missions? Well, some see it as to be the momentary instruction of Jesus. It was for a particular time with a particular urgency that they would not pass through all Israel before the Son of Man comes. It was a particular focus with a particular nation They were not to go outside to the Gentiles but only speak to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and so we can understand why they travel with all haste and with minimum provisions, yet some of it seems to go beyond that, beyond the mission of the Twelve, to a permanent nature of world mission. Not that world mission is permanent or eternal for it too is a warning of people of the judgment that's about to come declaring to people the coming of the kingdom of God is still our message but today we say the kingdom of God has come in the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ just as we are waiting for the return of the king and today it's not just for Israel it's for all nations it's the way of life for Christians now in the resurrection age and it's like the mission of the twelve We need to keep moving and reaching out to more people. As the kingdom is proclaimed, we see different responses, some of which are wonderfully positive, some of which are dreadfully negative and divisive. We see divisions even within families, let alone within societies, and we see persecution abound. But yet, we are in the age when the gospel is not restricted to Israel, but is open for all the world. and not for some nations, but for all nations. And we are still the people of the Lord Jesus Christ, with the responsibility to reach to the ends of the world with the great message of the Lord Jesus Christ. So there are some aspects of it, especially the urgency, which is not true of today, and yet is true of today. We, we do need to speak to our present generation before they die and come to their judgment. And there are millions of them who have not yet heard. And so there's enough reason to to live simply, to carry little, in order that we may get on with the task that is before us and give generously to those who are out doing the work. So what of us? Not our society encourages us to go quietly, not to cause waves, not to speak up on issues, not to talk about Jesus and God, certainly never to talk about the judgment or hell or people being in the wrong and needing to repent. That's really politically incorrect, isn't it? We're pressured to give up, to give up proclaiming the coming of the kingdom of God. And we're fearful. We're fearful of speaking the truth and then being dragged into court Our names being dragged through the media mud, which is even worse than the courts. Friends, can I encourage you what Jesus said? Be innocent as doves. And let us learn the wisdom of the serpent. For wisdom would teach us not to be surprised about the wolves. They hated our master. They called him Beelzebul. They will now, as ever, hate us. When you see Christian leaders being attacked in the media, made fun of, ridiculed, opposed, rejoice and be glad for such they did to the prophets of old. It doesn't matter, that is what we expect. We should expect none other. We cannot make decisions based upon popularity or even acceptance. We cannot be in world mission and expect to be universally liked or even tolerated but we mustn't worry about what to say under pressure for the Holy Spirit is the real evangelist he will speak the gospel message speak up do not be worried about being caught just speak the truth one of the truths sometimes you need to speak in the office is to say I don't know about that I must go home and ask my minister and find out for you That's the truth, that's the truth. I don't have to have every answer to every question before I say anything to anybody. Just say the truth. For the gospel is the truth. We mustn't worry about what to say under pressure. The Holy Spirit is the real evangelist. And if we're in world... And all Christians are and should be, for if you're unconcerned about the lost, it's prima facie evidence... you're lost, for those who have been saved, our concern is world mission. If we're in the world mission, we're bound to be hated like our master. That goes with the territory of preaching the cross. So, we must endure to the end, for it's he, he who endures to the end who will be saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father we thank and praise you for all the good things you give to us but above all for the Lord Jesus Christ that he endured to the end that he was willing to accept the cross with its pain and suffering and with its shame and ignominy to be cursed for us that we may be saved we thank you that he didn't back down but he continued right to the end give to us Fatherly Father that faithfulness of the Lord Jesus that we too will endure, that we too will not shrink back, but that we will declare the great news of salvation, that our friends and neighbours, our work colleagues and our family might be spared of the awful judgment that is coming upon humanity and find their salvation in Christ, in whose name we ask it. Amen.